This is Reclaiming Jane, an Austin podcast for fans on the margins. I'm Emily Davis-Hale. And I'm Lauren Weathers. And today, we're talking about chapters 41 through 45 of Sense and Sensibility with the topic of religion to guide our conversation. book oh my god it it started out like not slow but pretty tame and then the last few sections wow we're just racing towards the ending here we really are I'm like oh my god how many more things are we going to cram into this book it's so much it's like this is our penultimate episode talking about sense and sensibility we've only got five more chapters left in the whole book and I legitimately have no idea where it's going to go from Which here. Which is so thrilling, isn't it? It's always nice not being able to predict the ending of a book. So, for example, did you think that we would be spending these five chapters with Marianne, like, on her deathbed, pretty much? No. Out that, of nowhere? That came out of nowhere. <laughs> Foreshadowing where? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe, one, that we're almost done with this book, and two, that we only have two more episodes of Sense and Sensibility before we move on. I know. That went so fast. It did. I feel like all the things I have to say we have to keep in our actual, like, recap slash discussion. Mm -hmm. So do we want to start with our 30-second recaps and then just dive on into the content? Let's do it. Are you ready to recap? No. (laughs) Come on, come on. It's the second to last episode. Gotta keep it moving here. I will have confidence in myself. I am ready to deliver. All right. Timer is starting in three, two, one. Okay, the Dashwoods finally leave from London, but not after a few more awkward conversations with John and the member of our hate club. Um, Eleanor also sees Edward's brother, who she vehemently dislikes. They are moved to the country. Marianne comes down with like this mysterious illness after going for lots of walks. Willoughby shows up because he hears that she's like dying and then pours out his guilty soul to Eleanor, who feels sorry for him for some god-awful reason, because I don't. He's still trash. Um, his, her mother comes back, Marianne becomes better, and Colonel Brandon's totally in love with her. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't know what I'm being thanked for. <laughs> for recapping. I don't Yay. know. Being, being the first one. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Okay. Are you ready to follow up that fire recap? <laughs> now that you put it that way, geez. <laughs> so much pressure. We're trying to have confidence here. The proper response is, yeah, I'm going to murk you. You have to, like, <laughs> bring me the same energy back. You're going down, Lord Mother. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yes. Beginning in three, two, one, go. So the Dashwoods finally leave London. Uh, They are going with the Palmers to their home at Cleveland. Um, But then Marianne gets sick unexpectedly and uh, everybody's freaking out about it. Um, Eleanor is taking care of her. Willoughby shows up out of the blue while Colonel Brandon is off fetching Mrs. Mrs. Dashwood. Um, He makes confessions and things are happening. Yep. I lost the thread at the end there. Oh, goodness. And just another reminder, we only do these in one take. We really do. (laughs) 
Sometimes it shows more than others. Yeah, yeah. Man, I was feeling good about this too because I, I admit I only read this section this morning. And so I was reading through it. It was like, yeah, oh, I, I know what I'm going to talk about. No. Mm-mm. It's okay. We have one more Sense and Sensibility episode. We're both going to nail it. Just going to crush it. Put that out into the universe. Yes. Manifesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. What aspect of this do we want to dive into first as far as like general recaps go? I think chronologically, yes. general recap, because things start happening more and more towards the end of the section. So uh, while they're in London, like in the, the last few weeks, I guess, before they leave, Fanny and her mother, Mrs. Ferrars, are still all on a tizzy, which Eleanor ends up talking to her brother, John, about. Um, he still thinks that Colonel Brandon is totally into her, but... Um, he also shares that apparently it's been said that Edward marrying Eleanor, even though it wasn't desired, it would have been so much better than getting with Lucy. Such a backhanded compliment from your own brother. Like, I mean, we didn't want you to marry him either, but like, man, you would suck way less. See, I don't think he's even capable of giving a backhanded compliment. He's just head empty. Yeah. John Dashwood is a smooth brain. It's not like he was even trying to actively pay her a compliment. He just thinks and speaks simultaneously so there's there's no filtering that happens he was relaying a backhanded compliment Mm -hmm. probably without realizing definitely without realizing it was a backhanded compliment right and eleanor is the only one in this conversation because marianne has absolutely refused to come over she's like no you cannot you cannot make me go fraternize with those people uh marianne and mrs jennings absolutely refuse to go and see john and fanny which I get, but Eleanor is like, okay, I guess I have to, you know, keep up the mask of propriety and go let them know that we're leaving. The burdens the older sisters carry, right? honestly. Oh, good lord. They finally leave London and they make it to like their first stop in Cleveland and Marianne is taking lots of long contemplative walks amongst the mist unless it's too rainy. So, uh, First, to reiterate that Cleveland is the home of Mr. and Mrs. Palmer. Mm-hmm. So uh, it seems like Mrs. Palmer is pretty happy to be home, and she's very excitedly, you know, showing off the baby to all their servants. <laughs> and there was also a funny line about how uh, Mr. Palmer was clearly very fond of the child, although he pretended he wasn't. Which is so in character. It is. And Eleanor actually grows to like him a little bit more in this section as well. Like, okay. You're not actually that bad. You're a little gruff, but there's there's a little undercurrent of fondness and kindness beneath it. But being at home seems to bring that out of him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So who all is at Cleveland? Let's see. It's the the Palmers, Eleanor and Marianne, Mrs. Jennings, and Colonel Brandon is also there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're they're all settled in at Cleveland just for a chill time post season. Marianne is just all she wants to do is wander around outside uh except when it's like pouring down rain and she physically can't Mm -hmm. but then but then perhaps because even in drizzles and moderate rain she will still go outside and walk she comes down with an illness and um oh i can't wait for you to see the movie because in the movie it's way more dramatic anyway eleanor at first thinks oh it's just a cold you know she'll get over it she's not very concerned but then it lingers it just continues lingering So finally, uh, Eleanor agrees to let the Palmers call their local apothecary, I guess, 
and he doesn't seem very concerned, but it seems that he accidentally lets slip the word infection. And so Mrs. Palmer freaks out. She's like, no, I can't stay, which I, I get. She's concerned about the health of her newborn child, mm-hmm. who can only be a couple months old at this point. Max. If that. Yeah. Um, so she and the child and then Mr. Palmer all defect to a nearby relative's house. Which at first I was thinking, like, that's really weird that they would leave their own home, but then realize, like, okay, that's actually pretty considerate. Like, mm-hmm. this girl is is ill, uh, and they don't want to risk their baby also getting sick. Right. Um, but they also don't kick Marianne out of their house, uh, which was very surprisingly thoughtful. Kind. Mm-hmm. But um, Mrs. Jennings stays, which Eleanor is very grateful for. Because, you know, Mrs. Jennings raised children and it says that she has much greater nursing experience and that she was sort of a boon to have on hand. Mm-hmm. And that um, her daughter had asked her to come with them, but Mrs. Jennings refused and insisted on staying to take care of Marianne, just further cementing. And even in Eleanor says the same thing, like, you know, do you have any tact? No. But are you a lovely human being who just has endless amounts of love and care for the people around you? Yes. Yes, you do. I yes. really like you. So Eleanor and Mrs. Jennings have stayed to tend to Marianne, who still is not improving, and then she gets worse. She gets significantly worse. She has a fever, she's really not sleeping, and then at one point she wakes up just completely disoriented and is asking where her mother is and saying things like, I hope she's not coming, like, basically the long way around, because then I'll never see her. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor's like, oh, fuck. Time to go. Time to get mom. Yeah. She's trying not to freak out. She thinks she's about to die. So Eleanor decides that, one, of course, she has to call the apothecary back, but also that it's time to, to get Mrs. Dashwood there. And so, because Colonel Brandon is also still at the house... Eleanor goes to him for help, uh, and he immediately offers to go himself, calls up the horses right away, leaves as soon as they arrive to go personally to tell Mrs. Dashwood what's going on and to deliver her back to Cleveland and her two older daughters. Which is in direct contrast to the scoundrel who shows up hours later, basically, after Eleanor has moved downstairs and... um, she hears a knock at the door and she thinks that somebody else has shown up again and she goes to the door and it's Willoughby and she's like, what on earth? What possible purpose do you have for being here in the middle of the night? Like, he doesn't seem entirely sober, but he insists that he has a good reason to be there and then proceeds to spill out his heart to Eleanor for an unknown amount of time. Basically, he's just trying to redeem himself in her eyes and explains that he had genuinely cared for Marianne that initially he was just kind of, you know, having fun, hanging out, but really came to love her. Um, But then his cousin, Mrs. Smith, who he was staying with, she found out about the scandal with Miss Eliza Williams, who is, remember, Colonel Brandon's adopted daughter. The Um, one who will be impregnated and then left destitute. Yeah, he tried to spin, from what I could tell, um, whether or not this is true, that basically he didn't know she was pregnant. He was just very... He impugns her. No remorse whatsoever. He was like, well, I, she didn't say anything to me, and she easily could have figured out what my address was. Like, she could have told me, sir. 
Yeah, spare me. And gives this spiel about how I should have respected her more, but, you know, she did it too. It wasn't just me. Excuse me, sir. (laughs) You talked teenage girl into running away and sleeping with you. Um... I place the bulk of the blame on him. But he was the one who orchestrated the entire thing and then tried to act as though the power dynamics in that relationship weren't in his favor. She's like, well, she was an equal participant in the whole thing. And no, she wasn't. And you know that. But you're here groveling for pity. You are not here to actually apologize. You're here to assuage your own ego and make yourself feel better. Like, Mm -hmm. please leave. That that whole scene just made me so angry. And he also goes in on his new wife yeah sophia talking about how oh she was so jealous of marianne every time we were in contact and apparently she was the one who dictated that final letter that came from him which was so businesslike and mm-hmm. eviscerating for marianne yeah which this is not healthy in any century but it reminds me of people who write texts for their partners because they're mad that like their ex got in touch with them again or something like that And instead of letting the partner respond because they've been reading over their shoulder and seeing who's texting them or just monitoring their phone for whatever reason, they're like, no, no, let me tell you what you're going to say back to this person, which no, don't, don't do that in 1813. Don't do it in 2021. Stay out of people's business. Yeah. So Willoughby has laid out this defense of himself. It's not even a defense. It's just making all kinds of excuses for how shitty he's been to everyone Mm -hmm. to marianne to eliza to sophia um he's trying to say what did he say oh i've i've always been a bonehead but uh i've never been a rascal and i I wrote next to that i think miss williams would disagree on that front he only married sophia because Mrs. Smith said that he would be disinherited because of what he did with Eliza once she found out. So I had to do what I had to do. But it's not as pragmatic as it sounds because you wouldn't have been in poverty. If it were actual poverty versus like living a life free of worry, then okay, cool, let's have that conversation about like the horrors of class. But <laughs> And he does that manipulative self-deprecating thing where he's like, oh, I can't believe I was such a horrible person as to put money above the affections of your sister, which the whole thing, it sort of sways Eleanor a little bit towards his camp. She still doesn't like him and doesn't like what he's done, but she has a little bit of sympathy for him, which... Sorry, Eleanor, I didn't agree with that. Yeah, she goes back and forth the entire conversation, but also because Willoughby is showing here how much of a skilled manipulator he is, so we can see how he must have played on the emotions of Eliza, of Marianne, even though we never really see those conversations like on the page. He spends the entire time talking about himself and trying to manipulate Eleanor's emotions into feeling sorry for him, and the self-deprecating thing that you mentioned is very much like abuser tactic 101 where it's like I'm going to apologize in a way that makes you feel sorry for me and then reassures me it's like now I'm going to make you do all the reassuring when really I'm the one who's supposed to be atoning yeah it's the oh I I can't believe I did that I am I'm so sorry I'm the worst person in the world Mm -hmm. so that you end up comforting oh no you're not the worst no I am I suck look at all the things that I did to you and no it's fine it's not fine it's not fine so Willoughby comes and spills his guts to Eleanor and then he leaves And a few hours later, Colonel Brandon returns with Mrs. Dashwood. 
poor thing, she is just in an uproar because when Colonel Brandon left to get her, Marianne was really unwell. She was delirious. She was feverish. Um, so she is like half expecting to show up to find her daughter dead. Mm-hmm. But Eleanor is able to give them the excellent news that Marianne is actually on the mend now. And who knows how far the word went that Marianne was on the brink of death because the whole reason that Willoughby came was because he ran into Sir John, who was specifically trying to hurt him because Willoughby had been such an ass and was like, oh, by the way, you know that girl who you left heartbroken? She's dying now, so hope you feel good about yourself. Basically what he said. Be careful who you call ugly in middle school. (laughs) Anyway, what a mess. So they show up. Marion is doing better. Uh, Mrs. Dashwood is hugely relieved, of course. And then she tells Eleanor later that while they had been traveling, Colonel Brandon confided in her, confessed to her, um, seemingly in spite of himself, that he was just, he was so distressed that he felt he had to tell Mrs. Dashwood how deeply he cares for Marianne, Mm -hmm. that he loves her. This isn't much of a surprise to Eleanor at all, but then her mom continues on about how um, they'll be able to go and visit Marianne and Colonel Brandon, and Eleanor in the back of her head is thinking, that's even more reason for me to go to his land and his property, and I've been trying to avoid doing that because Edward has a living (laughs) over there, and I'm really trying not to see him. But all of you seem to be conspiring against me to make sure that I just keep coming into contact with this man who I would rather forget. Shall we talk about where we either found or read religion into this section, since that's our focus for today? Yeah. Shall I give some historical context first? Yes, please. Okay. So this story is taking place during a period that is coming out of the influence of the Enlightenment on religious life. England had been under the influence of Church of England, the separation from the Roman Catholic Church since the the mid-16th century. But in the sort of half-century before Sense and Sensibility would have been set, the religious landscape of the country was kind of changing. There were preachers coming onto the scene who um, were trying to draw people away from what had been almost secular observance of faith, where mostly they just kind of went to church out of habit. And these groups were instead trying to instill a more personal investment in faith and in salvation. That's referred to now as uh, this movement called the Great Awakening, which affected not just England, but also America um, when it was in the, the later years of the colonies, as well as its early independence era. This really led to a renewed vitality in the church uh, and just in religious life in general in England, um, which had kind of fallen off in the wake of the Enlightenment. And I would suspect as well in the wake of everything that happened in the 17th century um, with Catholic monarchs and Protestant rebellions and uh, the English Civil War and things like that. So as they're moving on to more than a century out from that, people are starting to embrace religion and faith practices again. Now, during this period, England was, of course, dominated 
by the Anglican Church in contrast specifically to other sort of nonconformist sects of Protestantism, as well as um, Jews and Roman Catholics and um, splinter groups like Baptists and Quakers. And actually, I learned something new that Catholics were actually barred from holding public office in England until 1829. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, because the Church of England was, I guess still is, government controlled mm. and sponsored because the monarch is head of the church. Right. Oh, dang. Yeah. I never I never even stopped to consider that. That's mm-hmm. so wild. Yeah, so we think about, you know, how Christian-centric the United States is, mm-hmm. even more so in England, especially this period. Right. All marriages and baptisms that all happened through the Anglican Church, there were only very specific exceptions, um, like for Jews and Quakers. But despite these relatively limited movements towards a more personal brand of religion, that didn't filter all the way through the Anglican Church. Mm. On the lower levels, you know, individual Uh, pastors might be more devout, more devoted. Jane Austen's father and her two brothers who were clergy seem to have been sort of in that pool. But although clergymen were traditionally educated and were supposed to be, you know, dutiful and seeing to the spiritual and even financial needs of their parishioners. Tend the flock. That wasn't always the case. And I can't imagine it was helped by the fact that large landowners owned these assignments and generally had the power to appoint clergy. I can see how that would go south real quickly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was also not helped by the fact that the bishops of the church didn't necessarily attain their position through religious devotion. Uh, And they just, they kind of enjoyed the prestige of that position without doing a lot in the way of spiritual guidance. Mm. And then even with the clergy who were doing their jobs, I have this quote from Henry Wakeman in the book, An Introduction to the History of the Church of England, talking about basically how most people experienced Christianity and uh, Protestantism and Anglicanism. Um, So he says, the clergy held and taught a negative and cold Protestantism, deadening to the imagination, studiously repressive to the emotions, and based on principles which found little sanction either in reason or in history. The laity willingly accepted it as it made so little demand upon their conscience, so little claim upon their life. I mean, that makes sense. If I have to go to church and church is easy, great. I don't want to actually do, don't make me do things. Don't make me change my lifestyle. Ew, no. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's it's nominal Christianity and nominal religious devotion. Of course, there were exceptions to this. I mean, Jane Austen, for one, would write prayers for her father's services um, and seems to be one of the genuinely pious people during this time. But another thing that I found really, really fascinating about this is that in contrast to how it's often painted in the United States today uh, with science and religion are inherently opposed, ministers were actually doing most of the scientific discovery, which really makes sense because they were the most likely people to be educated. 
um, at least in sort of the general population outside of universities. So that was super fascinating to me. Cool. Yeah. So that's that's our historical context. The Anglican church dominated. Religion was just sort of a habit for a lot of people. But there were, of course, people who were more genuinely devoted, who really took Christian faith seriously. Mm-hmm. If you were to place Eleanor and Marianne into those camps, where would you put them? In the religious habit camp. Mm, I think the only difference I see between Marianne and Eleanor, Eleanor definitely strikes me as going to church is right and proper, so I'm going to church. And then Marianne, I think, I see her as somebody who like does dramatic readings of Psalms because they're poetry. <laughs> yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah I, I could definitely see Marianne uh, cottoning more onto the idea of personal salvation and and having an individual relationship with Christ. Uh, But yeah, I don't think either of them would have like any kind of missionary zeal. They don't strike me as a type. Nobody in this book really does. Yeah. Edward definitely seems like the kind of clergyman who would just be educated and he would give his sermons and tend to the questions that people might come to him with but I also don't think he would be very invested in like proselytizing he would be good at it but I don't see him like diving into the mysteries of the bible every night in his free time he might but yeah I feel like it would be out of like an academic perspective though unless out of like faith which you know was not uncommon at the time Mm -hmm. I mean this is also the neoclassical period um people are kind of getting into the Greeks and Romans and investigating those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see Edward approaching that from sort of a secular curiosity mm-hmm. perspective. Do you know the acronym CNEs? Uh, Christmas and Easter? Mm-hmm. I call them Cheesters. Oh, I like that. <laughs> um, I'm going to use that instead of CNEs now. So I feel like if you, <laughs> if you picked them up and you put them in 2021, these like the dashboards would be like the, the Cheesters. They would, they would show up on Christmas and Easter because those are the, the main religious holidays and that's mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do. But like any given Sunday, eh. Edward probably goes about half the time. <laughs> and that reminds me of throughout Willoughby's soliloquy, you can see some like religious ideas or phrases in the way he speaks to Eleanor, which also makes sense for his character since uh, um, he and Marianne are the ones who are mostly tied to sensibility and that excess of feeling and art and literature, which you can kind of place the Bible in that camp, but also shows how much he doesn't actually believe in it at the same time. So the biblical teaching is that, you know, you kind of turn away from wealth and the accumulation of wealth. And there's so many stories about that across both the Old and the New Testament about, you know, the meek and the poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven and not the rich man who has been sitting on his wealth and not helping the people who need it. And while Willoughby is peppering like all this religious vocabulary into his story he's also talking about how he was acting only in the pursuit of wealth and wasn't thinking about the feelings or considerations of others and there are so many things that are basic biblical teachings that if you spend time in the church you have to know because you can't escape it that just don't stick with him at all i mean that's definitely not unusual to see today either Mm -mm. a term that i think is pretty apt uh is the idea of the gospel of prosperity i don't know if you can even really call it christian in terms of um systems of belief except for the incorporation of jesus as a savior figure 
because so much of the core action that people undertake, even as they talk about how it's a Christian nation, <laughs> they're not acting on, on Christian values. They're not taking care of the people around them. They're looking out for their own interests. Yeah, it's a lot easier to say that you believe something and perform believing in that thing and not actually doing what your chosen text tells you to do, which is what we see in Sense and Sensibility and what we see in real life. But yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, organized religion hasn't really appealed to me uh, for a while. But yeah, my knowledge of Christianity um, is probably also helped by the fact that I went to Catholic school for three years. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. it was pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade, but still, yeah, we went to Mass every Wednesday morning. That's another thing that's, I feel like I say constantly on here, like, oh, that's really interesting to me, but genuinely, so many of the dominant denominations in the United States grew out of traditions that emphasized a very personal relationship with God. I mean, Protestantism basically was um, everyone should be able to read the Bible and interpret it for themselves and taking authority away from the actual institution of the church. And yet American Christianity relies so heavily on the performance of faith. One of the other things that stood out as like a possible religious connection to me as far as this passage specifically is it almost feels like Willoughby's going to confession to Eleanor. Oh, for sure. Um, and Eleanor is trying to do the Christian thing of not judging him, but she should. This is where I'm going to say, now now be a hypocrite and ignore <laughs> what, <laughs> what the moral teachings tell you because you absolutely should judge him because that was worthy of judgment. <laughs> Actually, now that you frame it in terms of confession, let's compare Willoughby's mm. very performative confession to Eleanor versus Colonel Brandon's confession to Mrs. Dashwood. Yes, that is so reminiscent, too, of what you said about like performing Christianity and performing belief versus the quiet belief in that personal relationship with God or whoever it is that you choose to worship. And I feel like that's exactly analogous to that where Willoughby is one is being very performative in his confession and making sure that everyone knows how hurt he is and how sorry he is and Colonel it's, it's standing up and giving testimony in front of the whole church yes and making sure that everyone knows just how pious and just how sorry you are whereas Colonel Brandon would just have you know that quiet prayer and and that's it that's your confession and um your sins are forgiven, and I feel like that's more Colonel Brandon's approach. I think it fits really well into the dichotomy of sense and sensibility, mm -hmm. too, um, with sensibility being so much more associated with outward actions and sense being linked to introspection. Colonel Brandon and Willoughby, we've, we've talked before about how Willoughby embodies the Regency idea of sensibility. Mm -hmm. Whereas Colonel Brandon, like Eleanor, falls more into the category of sense. Right. And being, you know, internal versus external, introspective versus performative. Mm -hmm. 
It's really, you know, it's such a basic title, but it works so well for literally everything in this book. It really does. Jane Austen was a genius. Mm. Relating to sensibility and Marianne being linked to sensibility as well and being in touch with her emotions, like she, the part of the reason she gets sick is because she's going on these long solo contemplative walks. And that's also like a type of prayer or meditation is just being alone with your thoughts in nature, pretty much. Um, and that was something that struck me because I think that's something that I would practice because that's the type of prayer that makes me feel renewed. And so I liked being able to read Marianne's long solo walks. It's like this is her version of like of prayer or meditation or contemplation or whatever noun or verb you'd like to use. Yeah, I think we can definitely look at religion in terms of both an internal and an external practice. Mm -hmm. And like we can see with like Willoughby, for example, there doesn't seem to have been any kind of introspective work. He's just doing the external performance Mm -hmm. of conciliation yeah it's maybe like performative atonement because if he had actually done any type of introspection then he would have had a little bit more insight into his own actions and he kind of says like this is this is why i did xyz but it's still lacking the motivation piece because i feel like um whether you get this through prayer or therapy you need to understand your own actions and why it is that you do things. What is driving you? What <laughs> what caused you to do X, Y, Z? You can say, like, I self-sabotaged. Okay, but why? It's not enough just to be able to say, I did this thing. What was the root cause of that? And he doesn't have it because he hasn't spent time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's true, I think, for a lot of nominal Christians in the United States today. What has prompted their actions is other people's expectations Mm -hmm. they want to see you acting in a certain way and so they do that but it's not actually grounded in any kind of personal conviction and there's sometimes so much pressure that goes with that too like how you mentioned earlier that i mean the united states is especially the south is very heavily christian so it's like well if i don't want to be ostracized from my own community then i will continue performing this do i believe it yeah, sure, kind of, but yeah, <laughs> it's not... Not even necessarily from the explicit fear of being ostracized, but just because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got married in a church. I I don't subscribe to Christian ideas of marriage, really. And I think it would be disingenuous of me to be baptized into the Christian church and to declare that I believe those things, because I really don't. But... Yeah, you know, of course I was going to be married by a priest. It's what you do. It's not my belief, but it's what you do. And, you know, there there were people involved, you know, for whom that is an important thing. Mm -hmm. And because it wasn't important to me, I was perfectly happy to to do that. Because it has significance for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate when I can listen to people who really ardently believe in something and see like the life and the energy that it gives them because it makes me happy that they've found that even if it's not something that gives me like that same type of verve or energy or joy um just because we can all find things differently I think like my um personal belief is that every religion is recognizing like the same power that's kind of what I have in my mind we just have different ways of going about it and different rituals of it and Everyone kind of made their own thing in recognition of the great unknown. So there are things 
from Christianity that I really appreciate and can pull from and incorporate into my own life. But if I did more research into Judaism or Buddhism, I might also find other teachings from those religions that I really appreciate and can apply to my own life. But I don't subscribe to any one faith or way of living or any of that just doesn't fit me. I mean, studying studying the Bible and Judeo-Christian tendencies is important if you want to understand like European and American literature anyway, just Mm -hmm. because so much of it is steeped in it. Like any book from the Regency period, for example, like whether or not it's explicitly mentioned, a lot of the themes or the that's just Morality. the cultural setting. It's just the setting. And so to be able to fully understand it, you also have to understand where they're pulling from. But then it's also important, because it is the cultural setting, to explicitly seek out other things. I mean, I just read a rom-com where the main characters are both Muslim. And... Ooh, drop the title. Ayesha at last. Okay. And I really liked that it talks about how each of these characters approaches their own faith and why they approach their faith in those ways. Um, It was really good. It was really, really good. So yeah, I recommend checking that out. But also, you know, finding media where the cultural setting is different Mm -hmm. from the hegemonic Christian America that we find ourselves in currently. Yeah, I think it's more, and this is just my personal opinion, but I think faith is stronger when you have the opportunity to learn about different things and then you choose this faith versus this is what I was born into or what I'm told to believe, so I'll believe it. But if you get to explore different ways of understanding the world or moving through the world or different moral codes and say, ah, this one, this one resonates with me and this is what I choose to believe, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I feel like in all aspects of identity, not just religion, coming to something through consideration rather than by default Mm -hmm. is always going to be more meaningful and is always going to lead to feeling more authentically yourself. So whether that's gender or sexuality or religion, even if you come right back around to feeling most settled in the identity that you began with, then you know you know that you did the work, you know that you looked into other options, and that you've come to what feels most authentic and genuine for your experience. And, you know, it's it's never easy to do that. It does involve a lot of work, and sometimes it involves really difficult, frank conversations with yourself or with so other people. Worth it. But it's so worth it. This has been our earnest application for people to do introspective work. In whatever way works for you. Think about who you are. Think about why you are that. (laughs) Sorry, I just got to... What is... Is it the office? Why are you the way that you are? I hate so much about the way that you choose to be. It is. It's Michael speaking to Toby. (laughs) Ignore me. I'm sorry. (laughs) But yeah, I, I would definitely encourage everyone, either on your own or with other people. It's always more fun with other people. Um, But... You know, make sure you're you're in the company of people who are supportive of taking this journey, whatever it may be, wherever it may end up. Do you have a pop culture connection for us today? 
In a way, I do. Okay. In the vein of thinking about how, like, Christian values kind of permeate a lot of American and British culture. Um, We also see a lot of tropes in pop culture that come from that. And when Willoughby was in his monologue, because I took up so much of the events of this section, so we just keep coming back to it, he uses language that kind of hints at that Madonna horror complex where Mm. especially because if Marianne had died in that moment she would have died like an unmarred virgin who was just full of feeling and blah 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 you know pure Mm. and would have been the perfect Madonna who could be worshipped and revered forever especially because she's now untouchable versus the horror of Eliza in the way that Willoughby speaks of her and is just very dismissive and trying to claim as though she brought this on herself despite the fact that he was a very active participant and even that sometimes extends to like women who are married like sometimes the madonnas are still wives but there's yeah it gets a little bit complicated when you do that but i was thinking about that and then how that same madonna horror trope shows up in pop culture all the time as well so not only does it show up in how people speak about others in regency literature but you can also see it in how female characters are written for television and for books you know in comics you have like betty and veronica in the archie comics where you have the blonde all-american milkshake drinking girl who archie is supposed to end up with and then the raven-haired worldly veronica clearly setting up one is like the innocent virginal one to be desired for like a wife and a mother and the one who's only desirable for sex and shouldn't ever actually end up with a main character he can be with her for a little bit but then she's going to be cast aside because she's not ultimately worthy She's not the kind of girl you bring home to your mother. She's not the kind of girl you bring home to your mother. It also shows up in more explicit ways, like the the final girl trope in horror movies, where the one who is left standing is usually the one who is more pure or virginal, and the women who either have been trying to have sex during the movie or have been hinted at in dialogue to be the ones who are more promiscuous or more comfortable with their bodies, you know, how dare they... Those are the ones who die. And just seeing how that type of value that we place on women shows up in pop culture specifically because of values that were born out of Christianity, whether or not they're Christian. It's a little bit of like a tenuous pop culture connection, but that was what I was thinking of, how this type of trope shows up so often in our media, whether we mean it to or not just because religion is so entrenched in culture. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's it's really just, it's the extension of what we were talking about earlier, about how our cultural setting in the U.S. has become kind of default background Christian. Mm-hmm. And of course that's reflected in our media, which is why representation is so important. Because mm-hmm. then it just becomes a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. It's like what you see reflected in movies or television or literature is what you think is right or it's the only thing that's ever been presented to you so you don't know there's another option and I just I think about how harmful it is for girls to internalize that type of message like I no longer have worth because I've been touched why is that something that we continue to reinforce all the time yeah and it plays into all of our conceptions of gender and gender roles and sexuality morality Mm -hmm. it's everything Yeah, so I'm grateful that Marianne did not become the perfect martyr, but she really was set up as, like, 
perfect virginal martyr versus this fallen woman of Eliza. And we see that repeated. At least in Willoughby's conception. In, in Willoughby's conception, not by Jane Austen, by Willoughby mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah, um, Jane Austen actually understands that people are complex. Right. <laughs> and also was way too smart to purposely do that in her books. Oh, yeah. This is such a, this is so much more of a thorny topic than, uh, oh, yeah. Than I think I expected going into it, which is weird because I knew our topic was religion, but I feel mm. like it's difficult for religion not to be thorny just because there's so much associated baggage. Mm-hmm. There is, there's so much history tied up with religion, mm-hmm. so much religion and history. You cannot extricate those. No. Shall we do final takeaways? Let's do final takeaways. What is your final takeaway? Penultimate section of Sense and Sensibility. God, I really don't know what my final takeaway is. I'm going to say my final takeaway is that in times of need, people's true nature will reveal itself. Mm, I like that. What is your final takeaway for this section? I think my final takeaway is that religion and faith can be used as tools for greater self-understanding. And when used in that way, can be really beneficial and affirming. And Willoughby sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reclaiming Jane. Next time, we'll be reading chapters 46 through 50, our final section of Sense and Sensibility, through the lens of adulthood. To read a full transcript of this episode, check out our website, reclaimingjanepod.com, where you can also find show notes and links to our social media. If you'd like to support us and help us keep creating content, you can join our Patreon at Reclaiming Jane Pod or leave us a review on iTunes. Reclaiming Jane is produced and co-hosted by Lauren Weathers and Emily Davis-Hale. Our music is by Latasha Bundy, and our show art is by Emily Davis-Hale. We'll see you next time. It's about the journey, not the destination. Now you're going to be a fantastic youth pastor. (laughs) Oh, God, I don't want to be a youth pastor. I can already see you in the catchy Jesus t-shirt, you know, something. Um, Oh, God, I saw so many of these at church camp. For everyone at home, I'm just shaking my head. I just, I can see it. We just got to get you a microphone, you know? I have a microphone. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse you. (laughs) You're the one who invited me to join you on this podcasting journey. I'm rescinding the invite. It's over. It's canceled. It's too late now. (laughs) I have all the editing powers. Either you learn to use Audacity or I stay on this podcast. (laughs) All right, fine. I guess you can stay. (laughs) Can't learn another thing. I can't do it.